The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's begin with uh, Psalm 1. Open your Bibles to Psalm 1. And I hope you all got outlines or a, a handout at the back, a blue cover. Uh, there's still some back there I see. So let's look at Psalm 1 as a starting place. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of, of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." In our family devotions, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount in the evening. We go through, um, we're going through 1 Kings in the morning. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Do you see the same two roads here in Psalm 1? Do you not see the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked described here? Isn't it the same teaching? Isn't Scripture supernaturally consistent? I mean, there's no way that we can explain the perfect integration of these 66 books of the Bible except that it is God that is the ultimate author of Scripture. And the more you meditate on Scripture, the more clear that will become to you. The more incredible it will be, the more in awe you'll be of Scripture. But uh, it's more than that. It's also the desire that we should actually walk on those ways, on the way of Christ, that we should follow in His footsteps. And uh, it speaks, speaks here in Psalm 1 of the blessedness of a certain kind of life, of a certain kind of person. And at the center of that blessed walk is the Scripture. Do you see it? Uh, it? It starts out negatively. Blessed is a man who does not do certain things, you see. He's not going to walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, he's not going to go to unbelievers for his advice. He's not going to ask advice or counsel from the wicked. He, he's not looking for that. He has an ample source of wisdom. He doesn't need to go there and he doesn't need to get that bad advice. And he's not going to stand in the way of sinners. He's not going to be uh, carrying himself in that way. He's not going to be uh, allying himself with those who do not ally themselves with God. He's not going to be carrying himself in the way of sinners. And he's not going to sit in the seat of mockers or the scornful, the scoffers. Isn't it amazing how unbelievers scoff the things of God? The holy things of God, they scoff at the gospel, they scoff at scripture, they scoff at Christ. But this man doesn't want anything to do with that kind of life, not at all. Rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that really is the centerpiece of what I want to talk to you about this week and next week, delighting in the scripture, delighting in it enough to slow down and to ponder it and to taste it, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to reflect on the scripture. And it's not easy to do, you know, especially if some of you have picked up that through the Bible in a year uh, and you haven't done it uh, before and you realize, you know, you have to keep a good pace. I just finished last year, December 31st, and we had to do Malachi in one day, four chapters. We had the last two chapters of Revelation. We had all of the virtuous wife, Proverbs 31, and all of Psalm 150. Basically, if you want it, you had to earn it, you know, that last day. And, and so there was just a lot of reading and, and you're just going through it. And what can be, it's so beautiful to just move through the Bible in a year, but what can be lost, especially if you're of that box checking mentality, you know, you're going to do your reading for the day. It's meditation that can be lost. You can just be flowing through so quickly and see now how quickly can I get my reading done? Get your stopwatch out and see if you can get it. It's really going to be unhelpful to you if you don't couple that reading with a pausing and a meditating on something. It doesn't have to be on every verse. It really can't be. But that something would strike you. That you have a sense that God is speaking to you. That you're hearing from the Lord and that you expect it every time. When you sit down and you open up the Scripture, you really expect with all your heart that God's going to say something to you. You're going to hear from the Lord. And He's going to speak to you. 
And you don't know if it's going to be in Malachi 1 or Malachi 3 or in Proverbs 31 or, or in Revelation 22. But somewhere along the line, he's going to say something. And when he does, you ought to stop and listen. <laughs> it's really that practical. When he's, he's speaking to you, you need to just stop and listen and mull over what he's saying from the Scripture and just meditate on it. And you see it, you know, in, his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's not a burden to him. He's not wearied by it. It's not something he's disdaining. He can't wait to get into the Scripture. He delights in it. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, I think that there's no way that you can do this in, in your practical everyday life without memorizing Scripture. And so I urge you again and again, memorize the Scripture. It's really the only way you can follow this pattern of meditation on Scripture day and night so that some scripture you're working on is just marinating in your mind and you're thinking about it and you're seeing new insights or new connections that are coming. You're meditating on the law of God day and night. Now, I know it says law here, but it's remarkable as you read across scripture how many different genres of scripture are called law. Now, Jesus says in John 10, is it not written in your law? I said they are God's. That's Psalm 82. So the Psalms are the law of God. And uh, Isaiah 1, it says, listen to the law of God, you you you." Uh, sinners, he says in Isaiah 1. That's right, in Isaiah, one of the prophets. It, it, every, anything that, that Isaiah the prophet is saying, it's the law of God. And I think you can extend it to all the scripture, all 66 books. So it's not just that we're going to meditate on the five books of Moses or get really good at meditating on Leviticus and it will become your favorite book at last. All of those instructions about warts and, and about uh, uh, sores and hairs and, and bald men and all, all kinds of things will become your favorite book. It might be, you never know. But uh, I was talking to Mike Waters and he's going to be doing Leviticus in uh, his Bible for Life class. And he said he's going to probably empty out the class. You know, people are going to be going to different things. I said, you never know. Leviticus might end up being your favorite book. But that's not the point. The point is that you have the freedom to apply Psalm 1 to the, all, the whole of Scripture. On his word, on the written word of God, he meditates day and night. And what happens? You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. I think we who live in North Carolina feel more acutely the value of water than before we went through this recent moderate drought. And we call it moderate because there are some parts of the world that, that uh, have gone much longer than us without rain. But you know, when you see the reservoirs getting lower and lower and the, and the local news tells you that there's only X number of days left and you start wondering what it would be like if it doesn't rain and, uh, and all the more if it would extend beyond seasons and it's actually affecting the food supply, you know, you can see what it would be like to have a ready stream of water flowing for you. Water is life. And we have within us flowing streams of water, Jesus said. He'll open up within your heart a, a well of water and you can drink from it. Well, this is like a tree planted right by a river that never seems to run out of water. And therefore, it's always fruitful. And therefore, I think the man or woman of God who is meditating constantly on the Scripture is like a fruitful tree and people come and pluck your fruit all the time and they just eat from you. They just want to be near you. They want to ask you to pray for them. They want to ask advice. They want to be near you. There's just fruit flowing from your life. Not so the wicked, though. Uh, and, and you can see the direct, if the center, the center of the righteous life is the word of God, meditation on it, walking in that way, etc., then the center of the life of wickedness is a throwing off of the word of God as something light, something insignificant. They throw off the word of God. They don't take the time to study it. it it's not important to them. And they're walking in the way of their own counsel and the counsel of the wicked and the scornful. That's, that's who they're with. And uh, it says here, the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. They are like chaff. They themselves will not endure. They'll not survive. What do I mean by they'll not survive? Well, clearly, uh, they're not going to survive judgment day. I mean, look what it says. Uh, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing this as judgment day. These kind of people will not survive judgment day. They'll be swept away. And so will all of their works and all of their ambitions and all of their achievements swept away like dust in the wind. It'll be gone. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. And there it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And how does He do that? Well, by His indwelling Holy Spirit. We understand that fully in the New Covenant. The Lord watches over your way. Whether you're turning to the left or the right, He's watching over your everyday life. He's watching over everything that's going on in your life. Carefully watching over your way. He's watching over your way. He is your good shepherd. 
And if you should stray, he will bring you back. He's watching over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Now, it's interesting how you could meditate on that. Not just the wicked will perish, but his way of life is going to perish. There will come a day that no one will live like this. No one. It's going to be gone. And everyone will live like the first kind. I mean, in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be saturated with God. We'll be saturated with the things of God. But this way of living, this wicked way that does not take any consideration for the word of God or the things of God, it's going to perish. It's temporary. So why follow it? So what do we do? We just did a meditation on Psalm 1. That's all. I mean, you've been, any of you been here in this church for 10 years, this is all I do in preaching or teaching. This is all I do. I just take a passage of scripture and say, what does it mean? What is it saying? I'm just bringing it out, thinking about each word, pondering it, trying to understand it. This is just meditation. So just do that and you'll live. So go for it, whatever. (laughs) But I'd like to get a little more specific and talk about meditation. And I want to bring you to a book that I read some time ago, which I call, other than the Bible, of course, the most electrifying book that I've ever read. It was a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I was a seminary student at Gordon-Conwell. And uh, the book is Joy Unspeakable. And uh, there he, his basic thesis in that book is that God has periodically, from time to time, poured out his Holy Spirit on the church for the purpose of evangelism. And those times of the pouring out of the Spirit are generally called revival. Now, we're here in this church. We talk a lot about the two infinite journeys, that internal journey of sanctification, growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ, the external journey of the advance of the gospel of the Great Commission, whether it's your, your neighbor or to the distant parts of the earth, doesn't matter. There are lost people all around us who need to hear the gospel. And so the external journey is progress. When, when, when sinners repent, they come to faith in Christ, they're baptized, and then they're taught to obey everything that Christ has commanded. That's the external journey. Well, what is revival? We're going to talk uh, more about this over the next few weeks, but isn't revival a supernaturally uh, strong, powerful, rapid advance in the two journeys? Not just in one or the other. But the church becomes very, very zealous for personal holiness, confessing sin, putting sin to death, getting rid of worldliness, getting rid of things that hinder their walk with Christ. But along with that comes a great influx of people into the, into the uh, church. People have come coming to faith in Christ. Relatives who for years were resisting the gospel, suddenly they're converted. Uh, lost people brought in large numbers uh, to faith in Christ, baptized. And, and the conversions are genuine. Years later, they look back on that time in their life as the, the, the time when they became a new creation in Christ. So isn't a revival uh, a time of great advancement in both internal and external journey? For me, though, I think that the greatest thing about a revival is that it's supernatural. It's something that God does, that God alone can do. It's an encounter with the living God. And that was what was really exciting for me. Obviously, it's exciting when lost people come to Christ. It's exciting when we see growth in ourselves. But for me, can there be anything more exciting than being with God, being close to God, having a sense of the immediate presence of Almighty God, having a sense of His immediacy, the imminence of God, And uh, one of the key verses in the book is in 2 Corinthians 12. There the Apostle Paul talks about his own experience. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Now that's an electrifying passage of Scripture, isn't it? And you think to yourself, boy, I would love that to happen to me. I would love to have one of those in the body or out of the body, I can't tell, God knows, experiences, right? Where I could just have a sense of the immediacy of Almighty God, a sense of the presence of God. Now, it's easy to say Paul was an apostle, that kind of thing isn't promised to us. Well, actually, quite the contrary, that kind of thing is exactly promised to us. We're going to be spending eternity in the direct presence of Almighty God, aren't we? And why shouldn't we ask for foretaste through the Holy Spirit? Deposits, down payments, guaranteeing the full amount? Why not? Now, Jesus said in Luke, in Luke's gospel, which of you fathers, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more you, Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so I think the Spirit is given to give you a sense of the immediacy of the presence of Almighty God. Aren't you hungry and thirsty for it? Why not ask for it? Why not ask for him to do this in your life? And there are many testimonies, and you've heard them before. I'm not going to go through them again, but from church history of people who experienced an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 
who experienced a, a sense of the immediacy of the presence of Almighty God. They had a sense of that. God worked it in them. And, and they, they never felt the same again. It was an incredible experience they had. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan writer, describes this kind of thing. He describes a man and his little child walking down the road. And as they're walking down the road, suddenly the father, moved by some sudden in, impulse, picks him up off the ground and hugs him. I think about this frequently. I have little children. Some of them, they're too big for me to pick up. They actually might be able to pick me up at this point. All right, which wouldn't be a bad thing. I, I wouldn't mind my son picking me up and telling me he loved me and all that, but probably not going to happen. But at any rate, I, I'll, you know, just pick Calvin up. Uh, Daphne expects it when I come home. She expects it. She runs for it with her arms uplifted. She expects fully. I'm going to pick her up and she's going to have a little fun time there with Daddy when I come home. She fully expects it. And that melts my heart to see that. You know, where's your expectancy? Do you fully expect that God's going to do that for you? Why not? Why not expect that he would just pick you up and give you a sense of his great love for you? Romans chapter 5, that God's love could be poured out on us by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Why not? Why not expect it? But what my whole point here to you is that that happens through the scripture. It happens by means of the scripture. I'm not saying that it, would ha it couldn't happen if you're not reading the Bible, you're just praying and that God could do it. That's true, but we're not starting from scratch. We already have the scripture inside us, don't we? We already know many of his verses. And so these experiences are, are going to be scriptural experiences or you ought to be aware of them. These are scriptural experiences of Almighty God and they happen when you meditate on the promises of God and the nature of God. It's a scriptural experience that I'm talking about here. And I want to teach you just some approaches to, uh, to make yourself available for it. You know, that's, I like the expression, even though the Roman Catholics use it frequently. We talk about means of grace, all right? Uh, I wouldn't call them sacraments, but it's just a sense of putting yourself where God has already promised he's going to bless. He's going to work there. And, and the scripture is the primary one. It's a river of grace. You put yourself under that river of grace or that blessing, you make yourself available, and he will pour himself out on you. And he does it by means of the scripture. Now, why do we need this? Well, because I think we uh, live in a kind of a barren modern ex experience spiritually. The barrenness of modern life. I think, as I've said before many times, never before have Christians had so many distractions from Christ and from his work in us and around us. We have constant distractions and we have to fight them off. Our affluence, leisure, and our astonishing technology give us more diversions from kingdom business than any generation in history. You ought to know that so that you can know what to watch out for. You can go long, long, long times in your Christian life without having any new thoughts about God, without having any sense of the presence of God. doesn't mean you're any less a child of God, but you're just starved. You're just starved. Corey Ten Boom said, beware the barrenness of a busy life. We have busy lives. I think we're almost proud of it. We talk about it. Oh, it's been so busy recently. So busy, so busy. Christmas, what a busy time. You know, it's almost like a badge, badge of courage or badge of busyness. The busier we are, the holier we are, something like that. Actually, it's kind of the opposite sometimes. And, and beware the barrenness of it. There's a spiritual vacuum or emptiness that comes from being that hurried. Uh, beware the barrenness, I might add, of a shallow life. You know, that, that we can be shallow in our handling of Scripture, shallow in our spiritual experience. Haven't learned anything really about the Christian faith in a year. That's barren too. And that has resulted, I think, in somewhat of the shallowness of the Western church. I think that the Western church is shallow doctrinally. Not every local church, I'm not saying that, not every teacher, certainly not saying that. But at the same time that modern technology is infiltrating modern worship services, making them more spectacularly appealing to the senses and sensational to crowds that pour in, that are titillated by that, those kind of sensual experiences, at the same time, doctrinally, it's shallow. Very shallow. I was talking to uh, somebody about uh, one, one well-known TV preacher and they listened to the entire sermon and didn't hear a single thing about the Bible. Not a single thing. And uh, I think you can go through that. There's, it's just a tremendous set. I mean, expensive. Maybe the set that you see behind this preacher is more expensive than our church. I don't know. But it's just amazing display of grandeur. But there's just nothing being said worth listening to. You can go the whole time and there's nothing moving inside you. You don't learn anything. It's just barren. And that's something we have to be, be careful about. Oz Guinness was talking about the state of American preaching. And he said, nowhere else in the Western world are the pews so full of people and the sermons so empty of biblical truth. It's a problem. Michael Green uh, said this, this is the age of the sermonette and sermonettes make Christianettes. 
Well, see, what I'm going to be advocating tonight and next week is that you should be your number one own best preacher. Preach to yourself. I mean, I have a role to play on Sunday mornings, but you can preach to yourself far more frequently than I can. You should be preaching to yourself according to Psalm 1, day and night. So preach to yourself based on Scripture, day and night. And don't preach sermonettes to yourself. Preach deep, rich, full sermons to yourself. That's what I'm getting at. Shallow preaching comes from shallow biblical meditation and prayer. You want good, deep, rich sermons, then you have to have somebody who's going to take the time to meditate and pray over the text. You want to preach well to yourself, then do the same. That's all. Meditate deeply and richly. Will it bear up under that kind of scrutiny, do you think? Will the Bible handle that close dealing? Or will it, will it uh, disappoint you? You know, will it end up having been a sham? That the more closely you look at it, then you start seeing problems and flaws. I tell you just the opposite. The more closely you look at it, the more astonished you're going to be. It's really amazing. So look at it closely. Also, I think because of our vulnerability to Satan's attacks, because biblical meditation is lacking, faith is anemic and prayer is powerless, and therefore we're vulnerable to Satan's attacks. We're unacquainted with the deep, rich fellowship that God offers his saints over the word and in prayer. We're craving something, and Satan's going to give you that something, if it's not going to be God, it's going to be something that will supposedly satisfy you. And it's not going to satisfy you, but he's there. He's ready. The remedy, however, is scriptural meditation and prayer. So joy and delight await us here. Thrilled to speak about this. Thrilled to think that you guys might go home and be more excited and interested in studying the Bible for yourselves. I don't know if you notice the rhythm of my ministry here, but we do this every January. Every single January, we talk about Bible. We talk about Bible intake, memorization. Look it up. It's there <laughs> every single year. And it's just that you would just motivate yourself to feed on the Word of God and do it again for years. Oh, I did that a few years ago. It was good. It's good. I'm on to other things now, though. You know, <laughs> you got to do it every year. You got to do it every, every day, really. So our focus here is on biblical meditation leading to prayer. So in effect, I'm talking about somewhat of a heavenly conversation, right? God speaks to you through the Scripture. Through the Spirit, God speaks to you and you speak back to God through prayer. It's a conversation. That's what a quiet time should be, is that God is speaking to you and you are uh, returning it back to God in prayer. Now, there are many types of meditation. I think you know that. If you see the word meditation, you know, you think, oh boy, what are we getting here? All right, what kind of techniques? I read a book sometime ago by a Christian man who uh, came from an Indian family. Uh, the name of the book, is his name was Rabbi Ma, uh, Rabbi Maharaj, and the name of the book was Death of a Guru, one of the most fascinating testimony books I've ever read. He was born in Trinidad. He was a son of a renowned father who was revered in the Hindu religion as a Hindu of Hindus, a Brahmin. Very few Brahmins convert to Christ. Very few. Most of them are from more uh, lower caste or outcast Dalit. Uh, most of the church is, is of the untouchable class. And, and that's what God said he would do in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many were wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth. So he chooses that. But this was a Brahmin man. Uh, he was of the highest caste and descended from generations of Brahmin uh, priests. Well, Rabbi, before he came to Christ, he gave himself to mind-emptying meditations leading to astonishing flights of psychedelic visions and astral projections where he was somewhat moving through the universe and through the cosmos, whether in the body or out of the body, he couldn't tell, which left him feeling filthy and empty when it was done. This is before he came to Christ. So I think we have a sense that there's a demonic aspect of that kind of mind-emptying projection, astral projection kind of meditation. It's dangerous. He eventually came to Christ and speaks against this kind of Eastern mysticism and it's mind-emptying meditation. I am not speaking to you today about mind-emptying meditation. I'm speaking to you about mind and soul-filling meditation. Filling your mind with Christ, filling your mind with the text of Scripture, filling your mind with more thoughts and more deep, rich connections than you have time for in a 45 or 50-minute sermon or 55-minute sermon or 60-minute sermon or 65-minute doesn't matter that you're just filling yourself with the word of God. There's just so much in there, not mind emptying. And that's what the Eastern religions do. Hinduism, Buddhism, you're seeking to become empty. You're practicing in Buddhism, total control of the body so the mind can be given wholly over to self-emptying. Meditations on conundrums. What's the sound of one hand clapping? Think about that for the next 25 hours while kneeling in a certain position. 
and they have priests walking around slapping you if you fall asleep, you know? And so you're just emptying your mind, meditating on this one thing. What's the sound of one hand clapping? You're just thinking about this endlessly until finally something happens to you. I don't know what it is. It's probably more physiological. What's that? One hand slapping. That's the sound of the priest slapping you when you fall asleep. Um, So they keep thinking about this. The goal of Buddhism then is to become nothing. And that's the ultimate end of their heaven anyway, isn't it? Hinduism and all that. You're going to become a drop in an endless sea. What happened to me? You're not there anymore. You're gone. Well, I actually think personhood is a gift of God that God will uphold from here to eternity. You can't stop existing. It's impossible. You will exist somewhere forever, heaven or hell, but you're going to exist somewhere and you're going to be who you are. I'm not saying you can't change. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying you are a person that God has created. And uh, so that's just completely unbiblical. But their idea is a drop in an endless sea. You lose yourself and the better you do it, the sooner you do it, the better for you. You're going to lose all of your ambitions for yourself, lose all of your drives and all of your tastes and all of your desires, which are the root of all pain in this world. You're going to lose all desire And as a result, you'll become perfectly at one with the universe. So that's uh, Eastern mysticism. Secularized Eastern meditations become popular in yoga as a body relaxation technique without any real religious goals. But some people then go take a short step from that YMCA kind of yoga to, um, you know, more of a religious meditation, which is a real danger. Hollywood stars like Madonna have turned to Kabbalah which is a form of medieval Jewish mysticism in which adherents seek to uncover the secret things of God by chanting the 72 names of God uttered by Moses at the Red Sea crossing. So you're endlessly muttering these names of God. Jesus warned against this kind of praying. Do not be like the pagans for they they keep on babbling and think they'll be heard for their many words. And so there's this endless repetition. And you know, you can get into that with Roman Catholicism with the rosary. You've got the, the 10 Hail Marys and then an Our Father with the big bead. And then 10 small beads, that's the 10 Hail Mary, and then the large bead, and then uh, and you just work your way around the rosary. And some people just spend their... It's very much like the, 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 the Buddha, Buddhist prayer wheel. It just goes around and around. It's mind-emptying kind of prayer. And Jesus warned against it in, in John, uh, sorry, Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, that's what uh, this Kabbalah is like. Britney Spears had one of these Hebrew names uh, tattooed on her neck in order to bring her prosperity. I don't know if it's helping her much. But I'm just telling you, it's a trendy kind of Jewish type of meditation. But that's not what I'm advocating here at all. Christian meditation has never sought emptiness but fullness in Christ. Now, there is a long history, of course, of Christian meditation as well. Um, Mysticism, we talked about in my sermon on mysticism uh, in uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2. Bernard McGinn uh, published a multi-volume series on the foundation, growth, and flowering of mysticism in the Christian church. Augustine was the leader of, of the Western type of mysticism and uh, meditation on Scripture, meditation on the things of God. His confessions are entirely written in the second person, and it's basically an address directly to God. It's really a prayer from Augustine speaking of what God did to bring him to saving faith and really is quite a remarkable example of um, biblical meditation and prayer. He says in Confessions 1.1, You waken us to delight in your praise, for you made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Grant me, O Lord, to know and to understand which is first, to call on you or to praise you. So that's confessions, and it's an example of that kind of Western uh, meditation. Bernard of Clairvaux, as I mentioned, did, I found the number, I had the number too high when we did the Old Testament survey, but he did 86 sermons on the Song of Solomon. 86 on the Song of Songs. And basically, of course, seeing in the, the words of that book, Um, the soul's own relationship with Christ. And uh, so a lot of uh, meditation on on the relationship with Christ. He wrote, uh, for example, uh, Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills the breast, but sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. And the goal of these Christian mystics was always an experience of union with Christ. Many of their techniques of spiritual meditation I would commend to you, and many I would not. All right. Beware when you're getting up to 86 sermons on the Song of Songs. I mean, that's when, you know, it's I don't think it's exposition at that point. But at any rate, uh, some things are good, some not so good. Um, But I don't want to just talk to you about meditation. I also want to talk to you about prayer, meditation that leads to prayer. You're taking the text of Scripture and you're bringing it back to God in prayer. I think that's the safest, best form of both prayer and meditation. 
So there are various types of prayer, prayers of praise and worship, prayers of thanksgiving, confession of sin, intercession, fasting and prayer. These are all found in Scripture. And you can find a solid basis for any type of prayer you could ever want in the Bible. And you just draw it up out of Scripture, etc. All right, well, is scriptural meditation commanded and displayed in Scripture? Is it? Yes, it is. Psalm 1 is one example. We just did that a moment ago. But let's start with Deuteronomy 6. Turn there in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. These are very, very important uh, verses for parents, especially parents of young children who are growing in your household. So if you have young children, if you're expecting, and we have a couple of expectant mothers been praying for you today, so we'll be praying for you tomorrow, etc. Continue to pray for our expectant mothers. But if you've got young children growing, uh, you have a responsibility to bring your children up in the fear and nurture of the Lord, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is your job. How do you do it? Well, I think there may be no more practical verses on how to do it than Deuteronomy 6. I just think that Deuteronomy 6 is connected to the old covenant. You just take the practical principles and connect it to the better covenant, which is the new covenant. So we have all of uh, scripture available to us, but the technique is there. But look what it says, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now look at verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. What does that mean? These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. What do you think that means? Tom, what does that mean? These commandments are to be upon your hearts. More than the mind. But not less than the mind. Not less than the mind. That's right. And I'm not being facetious when I say that. People say it was all head knowledge. Okay, what part of your body do you use to have knowledge? (laughs) Where then is your heart? Don't point here. I mean, we know physiologically it's up here. It's just a different kind of knowing that we're talking about, you know? There's the knowing, and then there's the knowing with faith that leads to obedience. That's, I think, what we're talking about. There's knowing about, but then there's knowing so that you do and you obey. And, and I think what, what Tom's saying is you know the commandments at least. You can't obey what you don't know, right? But you know the commandments, but they're to, to have moved you to action. You're going to be obeying them. Now, who is, who is Moses addressing here? These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Well, it's everybody, all the Israelites. But given the fact that he's about to say, teach them to your children, he's talking to parents, right? So in other words, don't teach what you don't have, you don't possess. If it's not in your heart, you can't teach it. And uh, your kids know. <laughs> they, they know whether it's in your heart or not. They know whether the center of your life is Christ and his word or not. They can tell. And so it's got to be upon your heart. And then verse 7, uh, impress them, literally sharpen them into your children. The repetitious action of a whetstone there. Uh, it's the exact same Hebrew word. Repeat them endlessly into your children. Just repeat them. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So this is a kind of a group meditation being done there, you see, on the law of Moses. Well, just expand it out to the gospel. Let's have a group meditation every day on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king. He took on a human body. He lived a sinless life. He he did miracles. He taught parables and other great teachings. He was arrested. He died on the cross. He shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice. He was our substitute. He died, physically died. On the third day, God physically raised him from the dead in a resurrection body, spent 40 days with his disciples, ascended into heaven. Every day, meditate on those facts. Every day, and apply them. They're to be upon your hearts and impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. All right, turn over to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Is biblical meditation commanded and displayed in Scripture? Yes, it is. Joshua took up the mantle, so to speak, from uh, Moses. Moses forbidden to enter the promised land because of one sin. Very serious thing. Just because he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And God would not let him go in. He's talking to, uh, well, Joshua 1.8. It's a very uh, familiar verse. Um, Joshua 1.8. I'll tell you, Joshua 1, just an amazing statement. Uh, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you, Joshua. (laughs) How'd you like to be Joshua at that moment in redemptive history? Moses! Moses! 
is dead. Now me, what am I going to do? You know? And so, but you might, you know, become as, as, it, as it were a grasshopper in your own eyes. But Joshua already knew, don't go there. He and Caleb learned that lesson. All right, well, what am I going to do? And Joshua 1.8 tells him, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written. It. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. So he commands him to meditate. Don't let it depart from your mouth means you should be speaking scripture. It shouldn't be that you're talking anything but scripture. Now, that might have been hard when all you have are the five books of Moses, but he could do it. We have a great advantage over Joshua. We've got all 66 books now, so you could do nothing but talk scripture all day long. All right? If you know it enough, there's, there's, I don't know how you'd refer to your automobile, but you'd find a way. Um, but at any rate, just don't let the word of God stop flowing from your mouth. If anyone speaks, you should do it as one speaking the very words of God. I'm going to talk about this on Sunday in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. How do you do that? Just fill your mouth with scripture. Speak it. Don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. The question in front of us right now is, is biblical meditation commanded? Yes, it is. It's commanded. It's commanded to Joshua. Now, the word uh, translated meditate in Joshua 1.8 is translated in other places a variety of ways like moan, growl, utter, speak, and muse. You're thinking, boy, those are weird words. But um, basically, it's kind of like what you'll sound like if you're really kind of working over the scripture. Like if, you, if you're actually trying to memorize it, you'll be repeating it endlessly. You know? And, uh, but, but just realize that's not for other people to be listening to, okay? So if they come in and tape you and use it against you later, that's just unfair. That's not what it was for. And it wasn't meant to be for anybody else. It was between you and God. But it's just kind of a ruminating, ruminating over the Scripture. You're just working it over. That's what the word meditate means there. All right? Um, Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy 4.15. 1 Timothy 4.15. I'm going to give you the King James Version on this one because it uses the word meditate. Others will use other synonyms, but uh, we're asking about meditation. So it's right there in the King James Version, First uh, uh, Timothy 4.15. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. In other words, he's giving him a bunch of instructions for pastoral ministry. And he urges him to give himself wholly to them mentally uh, the King James does, as usual, an excellent job of translating. It is a, uh, an issue of meditation. Meditate on these things and give yourself over to them so that everyone can see your progress, the NIV tells us, so that you're going to see progress in them. Okay? Turn over one book in 2 Timothy 2.7. 2 Timothy 2.7. In verses 1 through 6, he's talking about the Christian life. He's talking more specifically, I think, about the Christian ministry. He gives different examples for example, he talks about the faithful soldier, you know, uh, the faithful soldier who only lives to please his commanding officer. He only does what his commanding officer commands him to do. Or the prize-winning winning athlete who does not win the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Uh, or the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. But then after all of these illustrations about ministry the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, the common uniting theme is discipline for a good purpose, right? If that's what draws the three together. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer, they all are disciplined in order to achieve something good. They want to achieve something. All right. After all that, he says in verse 7, 2 Timothy 2, 7, reflect on what I am saying for the Lord will give you insight into all this. That's a command to do what? Isn't that meditation? Think carefully about it. And when you, while you're thinking, what's going to happen? Something's going to happen. You get a reward while you're thinking. Something's going to happen. You get understanding. You get insight. The light bulb goes on. How many potential light bulb goes on moments are there in the 66 books of the Bible? Whoa, forever. I mean, you just reflect and then boom, hey, there's a new thought. I had a new one in Psalm 90, verse 12, which I just preached on. Teach us to number our days. Who's the first one that numbered the days? Read Genesis 1. There was evening and there was morning the first day. God's been numbering days since, the, the, since there was a day. 
All right? So I had never put those two together. You know how I many that light bulb moments there are? It's just unbelievable. They'll, they'll ne it'll never stop. Mm -hmm. Never. And so reflect on what I'm saying. All right, go over to Luke 8, 18. This is Jesus after the parable of the seed and the soils. Luke 8, 18. After the parable of the seed and the soils, which it seems Jesus considered to be the most important parable, he basically says, if you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any parable. All right, so the seed and the soils. You remember that one, the, the seed sown along the path and the seed that was sown in rocky soil and thorny soil and the good soil. All right. After that, in Luke 8, 18, Jesus says, Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. What does Jesus mean when he says, consider carefully how you listen? What's the context? Seed in the soils is about what? What is the seed? It's the word, right? Word of the gospel, but generally the word of God, right? And the soil, I think, would be your heart as you receive it into you. All right? So when Jesus at the end of all that says, consider carefully how you listen, what is he talking about? What do you do after you hear the word of God? What do you do after you read a passage of Scripture? Pay attention to what you do at that moment. One of the deadliest habits you can ever get into is to take in the Word of God rightly taught or preached and do nothing about it. That's a very dangerous habit. Very bad. And so he says you ought to consider carefully how you listen. You know, it's funny. They talk about preaching and you know, all these kind of cutting-edge church growth movements and all that, and they're doing new things now on Sunday morning. Preaching is on the wane. Pretty soon it's going to be obsolete entirely. I don't think so. But they think so because we're a more whatever kind of people now. And, um, you know, and, and to prove it, they say, you know what they say? They say, please tell me something you remember from a sermon you heard two months ago. They do this all the time. Well, I have worked on that statement over and over because I'm a preacher, so I think about it. It's like, well, I, have to get, I have to become a better preacher. Well, I do have to become a better preacher. But what does Luke 8.18 say to you about that? You have to become what? a better listener. If you can't remember anything from a sermon you sat through 45, 50 minutes of listening, you can't remember anything, then maybe you need to become a better listener. You know, yes, I need to become a better preacher. Absolutely, I need to. I need to be clear. I need to be spirit-filled. I need to be obedient to what I'm preaching. I need all of those things and more and more. But could it be that someone who can't remember a single thing from last Sunday's sermon needs to become a better listener? And if you can't remember it all, if there's too much flowing by you and all that, then get the CD. And listen more carefully. Is it worth it to you? Look at the text again. Look at Psalm 90. Go back over it. Could it be that God wants you to number your days so that you may gain a heart of wisdom? Could it be that there's more in Psalm 90 than I preached about? That there's stuff in there for you to work on? Consider carefully, Jesus said, how you listen. That's about meditation in my opinion. It means slow down. Slow down and let God speak to you. All right, Psalm 1 we've already looked at. Look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. <clears throat> Psalm 19 is about the glory of God displayed in the revelation of God. There's two different types of revelation. Some call it general revelation and some call it special revelation. Theologians make those distinctions. General revelation will be found in what? Nature. You're going to see it in rivers and, and rocks and eagles and stars and sun and moon and earth and all that. That's general revelation and God weaves His glory into it. And Psalm 19 talks about that. But then in the middle of the psalm, it kicks over into special revelation, talking about the Word of God. God's special message to the human race through the prophets and the apostles. God has spoken to us through the apostles and prophets, and He wants us to hear His Word. And so in Psalm 19, it's speaking about the law of the Lord. And it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. So that's talking about just the value of the Word of God. I cut off the quote in the middle here, so I'm going to actually keep going because there's more in, the, in here. Let me get to it. Okay. Verse 11. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. 
So you get warning and you get reward from the scripture. And then verse 12, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Do any of you have blind spots? The scripture is given in James like a mirror so you can study yourself. Not to study your face, but to study your soul. The scripture is given to study your soul and to see the blemishes, to see the weaknesses, to see the hidden faults and failures. Do you think that you're presently conscious of all of the ways that you're short of perfection in Christ? Are you presently conscious of all the ways that you're short of Christ? I tell you, you're not conscious of them all. There's actually gaps you haven't even noticed yet. And they're all covered, all of them, by grace, every last one of them. You could die without ever having discovered many of them. And then on Judgment Day, you will see how great is the salvation that has saved you. How great is the work of Christ in taking someone like you to heaven. It'll be an incredible moment for you. But it's good to know now, don't you think? And so it says, it says, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. And then keep your servant also from willful sins. Those are the two categories of sins. The hidden faults, the ones you don't even know about. And then there are the ones you know about and you do it anyway. That's Romans 7. The very thing you hate, you do. You know, and may they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Then in verse 14, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That, I believe, is a call to meditate on Scripture. I really think so. Meditate on it. And may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. It implies that there could be some meditations that would not be pleasing to God. Are you aware of those? Yeah, they're called sinful thoughts, evil, wicked thoughts. Those meditations are not pleasing to God. But these meditations would be pleasing to God. Wouldn't it be something to spend an hour fully pleasing to God in your meditations? To just open up a text of Scripture and do nothing but think about what that Scripture says. And that, that way you just know that your meditations are pleasing to God. And when Judgment Day comes and you face that hour again, you won't be ashamed of that hour because you are fully pleasing to God while you meditate on His Word. So is meditation commanded? Is it exemplified or displayed in Scripture? Yes, it is. Now, next week, we're going to talk about a special marriage between prayer and Scripture highlighted in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is, I think, the textbook for how to meditate on Scripture. It's the, the most complete display of it. We're going to look at Psalm 119. We're going to talk about Daniel 9 and how Daniel, in meditating on Jeremiah takes it back to God in prayer. A very good display of biblical meditation leading to intercessory prayer. We're going to talk about that. Then I'm going to go through different genres of Scripture and how to meditate on Old Testament history, how to meditate on Old Testament poetry, how to meditate on, on pro prophetic passages, how to meditate on gospel passages, how to meditate on Pauline or other epistle passages or, or, or apocalyptic passages. Uh, we're going to talk about different genres of Scripture. I'm going to give you different kinds of meditations you can do different ways that you can derive Scripture. I'm going to do that all in, in one hour, including the extended meditation on Psalm 119, which is only 176 verses. So we're going to, do, we're going to have a rich time. I got through a third of what I wanted to do tonight, so that's why we're going to do all that next week. But uh, at any rate, uh, we're not going to finish it all, but please bring your handouts that I gave you this time. I'll do maybe a third the number of handouts I did this time, next time, and they'll be sitting back there. But bring if you have one, bring it next time. But better than all of that, Better than all of that, how about spend a week meditating on Scripture? Spend a week doing that. Pick some passages of Scripture and just meditate on them. Memorize them. Memorize Psalm 1. If you're not memorizing anything, try start there. Six verses, you can do it. Yes? I'm trying to apply the principles that we talked about in Colossians and then in John Owen's book for my meditation. And my mind wanders so much, so often. So, uh, what... How do I apply, how do I um, mortify the flesh, the mind that wants to wander mm -hmm. when I'm meditating? Mm -hmm. I've been basically saying to the Lord, Lord, mm -hmm. I, Lord I put that sinful flesh on the cross when mm -hmm. mine wants to wander and mm -hmm. ask the Holy Spirit to mortify it. But boy, it's laborious. Mm -hmm. I don't get really far, mm -hmm. not nearly as far as if my mind were not centered by that. Mm -hmm. But are there particular techniques I can use to mortify that wandering mind. 
Well, first of all, I just want to praise God already, Susan, for what He's doing in your heart. Isn't it good to know yourself? To be able to say with the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Isn't it good to know that about yourself? It was true before you tried, really, to meditate. And just to know where you're at and to know that God loves you anyway and that God covers that wandering. I mean, isn't He likening us to sheep all the time? Isn't He the good shepherd that leaves the 99 all the time? So we are the ones wandering. So just stop and say, thank you, God, for showing me myself. So I, I know the questions about techniques and all that, but I think it's just good to just step back and say, praise God that you've shown me who I am. And thank God that you love me anyway and that all those wanderings... I mean, this is why you're trying to pray and trying to meditate on Scripture. How much less when you're not even trying to do that? How close are we to Christ then? <laughs> and so it's good to know. But then I just think meditating on Scripture helps to fetter you more than just generally praying or thinking about God more in the abstract. Just when you're going through a Psalm 1, if you're not getting anything any more out of, out of verse 1, then go on to verse 2. If your mind's wandering, you haven't learned anything new in the last minute or so, then go on to the next verse. If, if six verses of Psalm 1 isn't enough for you, then take on Psalm 119. It'll get you through the day, probably. I mean, there's plenty there, just verse after verse after verse. But I just think there's a focus to the Scripture. And you read it and you say, show me something new. And it could be that your mind is wandering on verse 16 or 17 because he has something to show you in verse 26. And, and what I'd urge is if, if there's nothing happening, saying, Lord, you're not showing, I'm going to move on. And then something's going to click in. So we'll talk more uh, next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for uh, this time that we've had tonight. Thank you for each of my brothers and sisters that you've brought here. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for its richness. Thank you that it will infinitely stand the scrutiny that uh, we uh, put to it. It will be able to survive the test of us looking so carefully at it. Um, Lord, and we will survive it too because you have made us eternal in Christ. We're grateful for that. Father, I pray that you would please give us strength in 2008 to learn more of the Scripture and put it into practice than ever we have done before. And that the goal would be you would be glorified and we would be brought to a higher level of obedience in Christ for the praise of your name, for the salvation of the lost. Lord, for our own joy and fruitfulness and happiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.